love you. Awesome. You can have a seat. That'd be great. Thanks so much for joining in, singing together, celebrating. It's awesome to be here today. Uh, those of you here watching online because you called in snow today, uh, thanks for being here as well. Thanks for joining us as we're here um, together on our 26th anniversary. Uh, and so we get to start another year together of uh, doing ministry together, and uh, you just don't know what God's going to do in the next year. Never knew what he was going to do in the first year. He surprised us all along the way, and I'm surprised, just as uh, amazed today as I was 26 years ago, about what God might choose to do. At very first day, March 1st, it was 1992, it was a nice, beautiful, sunny day, <laughs> I guess it's coming out now. Uh, but we had 158 people show up that day, and uh, just God just poured out his spirit on that day, and we just feel like he continues to do that through all the people who come, all the people who leave, all the people who come again, come back. God continues to move. He continues to do an amazing thing, and we just wanted to sing songs today that would point everyone to the real reason we're here, and that's Jesus. And the real reason we get together is because that God is our cornerstone and we can stand on him. So I, I just want to share a few pictures with you uh, just to kind of recap a little bit of history. Uh, our church was founded by six families. And here's a picture, I think, of most of them. And we'll just leave this one up for a little while. And um, what I remember about this as I met them for the first time in September 1991 when I met them is that um, this was just a group of ordinary people. Uh, so Kim and I came and met with them, and we just realized that uh, as we were hanging together, that uh, it was just ordinary people uh, who were willing to listen to God's call and step out in faith and have courage to begin a church. And as clearly as we could define back then, the idea was is that we would build a church where people would learn to love God, love people, and serve our world. And that's the way we began. We began with a passion and a purpose that our workmates, our families, our community, and then now we see around the world that we would build, have an impact for God and his kingdom, and we'd be able to touch others so that they would be able to experience him and grow in him. For 26 years, we've been working together, and we've been engaging in this idea to lead as many people as possible into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. That's what we're all about, to be able to do that. We do it by, through compassion. We do it through caring for people. We do it through the, the courage it takes to take stands, the, the, the willingness to bring God into conversations, the openness to be able to have discussion uh, without having to have all the answers, and that we allow people to be in process. It's one of the key components of who we are as a church, is that you're allowed to be in process, to hear from God, just as we heard from God each one of us at a certain point in our lives to follow him. So this is our first baptism. Uh, we actually were able to experience, you know, last week we had 23 people get baptized over here in a hot tub, and this was just outdoors, and uh, we still used a hot tub up at Mike and Levita Nevis' house. And then I'll just show you a picture of our first worship team. We just had, you know, a group up here. This was our first group of singers uh, that helped lead us. And uh, I don't even know if we had a band yet then, but uh, probably did in some fashion or form. And then on our first anniversary, uh, Lily Craig made sure that we had a way to celebrate, so we had a cake. 
And uh, like I said, that first uh, celebration, once again, we were, it was beautiful weather, so we were outside in the courtyard at Gold Run Elementary School. And we were at Gold Run Elementary School, which is now Forest Charter School up in Nevada City from 1992 until 1997 of December. Then in 1998, we moved to, go to the Veterans Hall and we began Hennessy School and began a whole new season of life there. So just some pics from that era and that you can see as these come along. Yeah. This one must have been a guest speaker we had that day. <laughs> Not sure who that is, uh, but that was a guest speaker. And then the next one, this is right after 9-11, or there's a picture of us singing and what it was like at Easter. And a picture right after 9-11, 2001, as lots of people were coming to try to figure out Jesus and what God was all about as they were feeling insecure after 9-11. Here's a picture of our 10th anniversary celebration. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Uh, multiple uh, events that we got, ha got together. We actually had, you can't see this in this picture, uh, we had 2,000 streamers, ribbons, hanging from the ceiling at the Vets Hall uh, that represented, as nearly as we could tell, the 2,000 people who had said yes to Jesus Christ in our first 10 years. So it was a lot of fun, just a great celebration we got to have together. Uh, and then uh, we had our building campaign, and here's one of our beloved pastors, David Crothers, who was a part of our church during that season and helped us to be engaged in that campaign. And then we broke ground here on our property on September 14th, 2003. And so there's our family, as many as we could get out. It was 100 degrees that day um, as we're out there on that dirt. It was pretty warm and it was pretty dirty and the kids liked throwing the dirt. So it was a pretty crazy, but see where the truck is, the, the flatbed uh, truck in the back, that's the stage. That's exactly where the stage was. And so we had our, brought our vocal team out. We sang songs, we praised God. Uh, we took dirt home. I still have my bag of dirt in my office and um, that we took home that day just to represent what God was doing as we planted ourselves here. And then we have the walls that went up. Um, it was just an amazing season uh, as we saw walls come up here and the you know, tilt-up fashion that we built. And then we were finished and we were getting ready to move in and we had the cross that we erected. Uh, Mike Nevius built that for us. He's in heaven now. And uh, it was just a wonderful thing uh, to be able to experience as we pulled the cross up, put it into place, and we had that water feature even that we never dreamed possible. Um, and then here's another picture of the music team leading us uh, here in the Vets Hall now. And then we have another like Lakewood, Lake Wildwood baptism picture here as we are now baptizing in lakes too. Um, but we can't do that anymore because they won't let us do that. But you know, somebody might help me with that along the way. And then uh, we have our 20th anniversary that we're at Gateway Park. Uh, that's kind of why they won't let us come out and baptize, okay? <laughs> uh, just so you know, our county's not made for stuff like this, that for, especially for churches. And so that's our 20th anniversary where we had Lincoln Brewster come and lead us in music. Once again, it was 100 degrees that day, just blistering heat. Uh, and, uh, but we had a great time being out at the park. And then uh, Fall Family Festival, uh, we get to see here as we were inside. I think this is the first year it rained and we were forced inside. Now we do it inside all the time. And then just another picture of us singing together. This is 2016 as we're able to gather together and sing. And uh, so that's just a short history of some photos just to bring you along about the history of our church. And so um, I just want to ask you if you'd be willing with me. Uh, can we just give an applause to God and thank him for what he's done? This is to him. This is to him. Yeah. Because as we just sang, may the weak be strong. And that um, as we come to do and serve God, the Bible is really clear that God uses broken vessels. Uh, he uses weak people. 
uses ordinary folks to do extraordinary things. He makes them stronger than they actually are. He gives power to ordinary words. And those words become spirit-filled. And they change lives. So I just want to pray, if we could. God, I just want to thank you so much as I reflect on that. I thank you for how meaningful it was for me. I know that some people, it wouldn't be because they've not been here that long, but they now get to have a taste for what it was like uh, to be here during those early days. And I just want to thank you so much for your faithfulness. You're a faithful God. You're faithful. And Lord, we just thank you for the past and we look forward to the future. And Lord, I I guess that as we were singing today, what I was hearing you say is, uh, don't be satisfied. Don't stop. As many people as possible means just what it says, that you are called us to reach as many people as possible. And so I just pray, God, that as we begin a new season of life, that we would begin it with hearts that are broken for our, our world as we see it, our culture, our country, our county, our city, and that you would help us, Father, to show us how each one of us can engage to be part of leading as many people as possible into a growing relationship with Jesus. Help us to know what that means. Help us not to be consumed by our own needs, our own desires, our own tastes and preferences. But instead, let us be thinking of the people that, except for Jesus Christ, are just a breath away from an eternity separated from God forever. Help us to keep that foremost and frontal in our minds, God. We thank you. Now, I pray you bless our service and our time today with your presence, and I am so eager for this. I just want to thank you so much for just providing what we're doing today, this facility, the people who are here that serve, and may we give you all the glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you would, you look in your program, you can grab your message notes out, and you can follow along. They'll help you uh, to be able to take some notes today. Uh, and then also, if you have your Bible, you can open it to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And because I'm going to be talking a lot about the Bible today, you might not own one. I'd love to give you one today. So if you'd stop at the bookshelf right out here, there's some Bibles there. We want to give you one. It'd be our gift today. You'd be able to take that with you. It would be awesome. So as I was thinking about this idea of looking back at history, oh, I remember we were in our 30s when we started the church. Uh, uh, and so... I just remember that when you're in your 30s, that one of the things that happens to you when you're in your 30s, because I remember pretty well what I was like in my 30s, is that, uh, that you look to the future primarily. In the 30s, you're looking primarily to the future. And then what's happened, and I, I know that's what we did as our church. In the, in the early st- days of our church, we looked forward into the future. We didn't care what would come before us. It, history didn't matter. Church before us didn't matter. We were going to change things. We were going to do things differently. We were going to go after people by letting them know that church could be relevant to their lives. That we were, by that statement, we were saying church up until that point had been irrelevant. How egotistical was that? But that's what happens in our 30s, right? And I'm not saying that you are if you're in your 30s, okay? But it's kind of what happens to us. It's because we haven't had life yet to teach us. And then what happens now that I'm in my, I'm not saying, (laughs) uh, you know, over 50, I'll say it that way, is that now I have different perspective. And so now I look back at what has happened, and history is meaningful. 
in history, there are moments that I want to be able to never forget. There are moments I want to take with me. There's moments of baptisms. I have one of those hanging downstairs in my, call it our TV room, uh, that a man painted of me after I baptized him, or right before I baptized him. I, I hang on to those memories because that's history. History is so important. But what happens is, especially I think in the age that we live in now, where everything's just moving so fast, and that we're so consumed with the more and the better, is that we, get, we forget about what's come before us. We forget about history, and therefore, we end up untethered, without an anchor, without something to hold us as we navigate the raging waters of life. So what I thought I want to do this series is I decided what we would do is we'd talk about what can we anchor our lives in? And the one thing we anchor our lives in is history. It's history. So here's what we're going to do. I never believed in my, in, you know, for, in the early days, you couldn't have paid me to do what I'm doing right now in this series. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to history, and we're going to take apart a season of the church's life in the 1500s when it was influenced by one man, one man who had courage, one man who took it upon himself to speak for God into culture. His name is Martin Luther. And we're going to look at him and the influence he had through what was called the Reformation. It was the reformation of the church, the change of the church as it goes forward. And so we're going to look at this, and we're going to talk about what happened on October 31st, 1517. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, who was a teacher, a university professor at this point, he'd been a monk, he'd been a priest, now he's a university professor, and he's teaching, they told him his assignment was to teach the Bible, that was their first mistake. So he started teaching the Bible in a culture that ignored the Bible and didn't really care about what the Bible said. And all of a sudden, as he's teaching the Bible, he realizes that what the church is teaching and what the Bible says don't line up. And so he started writing documents that were challenging the church and what they would say and what they were doing, especially in this age of indulgence uh, and uh, just total corruption in the church at every level, pretty much. And so he started writing documents where questions about, have we thought about this? Have we thought about that? And so he would write these documents, and he would post them on the Wittenberg door. Now, you've heard that probably Wittenberg door before, and you say he nailed them there. Well, it was actually a bulletin board. It was the community bulletin board, and so people would post things, kind of like they do at any you know, coffee shop you go to grocery store bulletin board. And so he would post his theses there, his questions there, and that people would read them and they might respond to them. So on October 31st, he posted another set of questions or theses, thoughts on the Wittenberg door. And he thought it would be like the others that he had presented that, you know, some folks might read them, but it really wouldn't have much impact. And he would go on and keep doing his thing. But what happened, because one man had courage and one man took a stand, changed Christianity, and I'll just say this for all time, just barring another incident where we get way away from this book and we start making our theology based on our opinions or what will keep someone in power or what will cause someone to get rich in some way or have control. What happened, though, then, four years later, 1521, is that he nailed, after he nailed these 99 theses, 
95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, is he was called to a meeting, and if you read it, you're going to say it's called the Diet of Worms. But that's not it at all. It's called the Diet of Worms. And so it's the Diet. I'm serious. That's what Diet of Worms. And so Worms, Germany, is where the meeting was. Diet is a meeting. It's a conference. And so he was called to this conference, and he assumed it was going to be to debate his 95 theses and just kind of talk as gentlemen and about what happened, about what he had written. But when he walked in that day, he saw every document he had ever written, everything he'd ever printed by hand up at that point. Maybe he might have gotten something to a printing press because this is the early days of that, but more than likely not. He saw them all laying there on a table, and he walked in. What he was asked to do is he was asked at that moment not to debate, but to recant, to recant everything that he had possibly written. And so he said, you know what? I need to think about that. I need to pray about it. And I just love that response. And so he said, can I have a night that I want to go in a night and pray about this? And it's because he knew that his response would determine whether he would be put into prison or possibly be executed for being a heretic because heretics in this time were criminals. This is heretics against what the church believes, were criminals because there was absolutely no separation between church and state at this point. No separation at all. The next day, he stood again before the council, and he said these words. I'll put them on the screens here. I'll read along. He says, unless I am convicted by Scripture, so here's what he's just laying the law down. He's laying how he's going to look at it. Unless I'm convicted by Scripture and plain or evident reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils. I forgot to tell you, we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church here when I say church. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God, to the Bible and the Bible alone. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe or sound. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. <laughs> God help me. Amen. You know, somehow in God's providence... I mean, you know, you read different accounts of how this all went. There was some, actually some people who saw that they could get gain from Martin Luther and what he was doing. And so either, you know, all of it, though, I believe is part of God's providence. Martin Luther was not arrested. He was not killed. And the spark he lit on that day as a young man who was willing to stand up and say, I'm going to build my life and my doctrine and my ministry on what the Bible says to be true and what my conscience says about the Bible being true in my life. It began a reformation in the church that, that day that is still burning. It's still burning. And we want to fan the flames of that reformation. We want to burn even more brightly. And as a result the, you know, of what he did and how he started, you know, started he interpreted the, the Bible from uh, New Testament from Greek, I mean, yeah, Greek into German... And as he was doing that, then the printing press came into you know, existence, and you know, the printing press transformed the entire world. Well, now, all of a sudden, because of him and some other folks from other countries around there, the Bible was being printed in multiple languages. And for the first time in a long, 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 long time, the ordinary people had the Bible in their language, because up until now, it was only in Latin, and it was only for the elite. And you never, no, no ordinary person could ever read the Bible. But it was only for the elite. Basically, the Reformation was a moment to call the church back to absolute dependence on the Bible, on the Bible as their foundation, or as their source, or as their anchor for doctrine. And it was primarily about 
salvation. Because that's the, that's the key idea. Christianity without salvation is not Christianity. And so how are you saved according to the Bible is what the Reformation was all, alike, all about. So it was built on five pillars then, or we're going to call it five, not me, it's called five solas. So you want to write that down in the blank there. The five solas, there's the spelling, solas, are the foundational set of biblical principles that emerged during the Protestant Reformation that summarized the essentials of Christianity and salvation in Jesus Christ. Now that word sola, it means alone, it means only. So only or alone, so it, when it says sola, it means this thing alone. This thing only are we going to hold on to. And when it says that, it says no other teaching, no other reality, nothing can change the sola. Nothing can change the reality of what this book says. Not the church. There are churches that change this book and make it to read something it doesn't or ignore this book. Not the government. Government says that we have to keep this book in a box. Not the culture. The culture says, why would you ever believe in a book like that? What this book says is not based upon opinion polls, but it's based upon what God would say to you and me. And when we trust God, what he would say to you and me is for our best, for our absolute best, for culture, society, and individuals. So we have five realities that uh, we're going to talk about in just a minute. Before we do, I just want to give you this theme verse that we're looking at. And the theme verse is this. In Hebrews 6, it says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And the hope is talking about the hope in Jesus Christ. But we're just saying in, in, you know, about this series today, it's the hope that we have and the anchor that we have in these five solos. Let me give them to you. And this is where I, I just totally never would have imagined ever, and of course, I can only do this because it's right here, speak Latin in church, okay? So some of you are going to be amazed at my intelligence here, but here we go. So we have five solas, sola scriptura, and so that's scripture alone. We have sola gratia, sola gratia, that's grace alone. We have sola fide, fide. Faith alone. We have sola Christus, Christ alone. And we have sola de gloria, sola de gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so those are the five foundations, and this is what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. We're secured in a re reality that's written in the pages of the Bible, and it boils down to this one purpose, the last one, will we live for God's glory and God's glory alone, no matter what. His glory and his glory alone. Because these five keys are the, five solas are the key to our understanding of the Christian faith. And we're going to look at them in these series kind of one by one. And today we're going to pull apart in the little bit of time we have left this idea of sola scriptura. Now Mark read this verse earlier from uh, Isaiah 8. It says, look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. And so anytime you choose to contradict living by God's word, what it says here is you're living in the dark and the choices you're making are not going to lead you to the best that God has for you. In fact, it may lead you so far away um, that you won't even be able to experience God's presence in your life without a major overhaul and turnaround to come back to him. 
Sola Scriptura is a starting place because it's the foundational understanding that God has revealed himself to us in the pages of a book. The words that are written in the pages of the Bible are the words of God, the words that come alive in our experience, come alive there. So here it is from 2 Timothy 3. Paul's writing to Timothy about his walk with God and the scripture. And he says, you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. For you've been taught the holy scriptures. So you've been taught the Bible from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ. So the scriptures are teaching from cover to cover about Jesus Christ and then the coming salvation that he would bring when he came to die on the cross. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it, it, the scripture, to prepare and equip his people for every good work, for every good work. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take those verses, especially, or only, verses 16 and 17, and I'm going to pull some thoughts out of them that we're going to anchor into that we're going to be able to rely on. And the first one is this. We can rely on God's word to be reliable or inspired. His word is reliable because it's inspired by him. He said it himself. Paul's writing here, and he says, all scripture is inspired. All of it is inspired by God. Some of your translations would say it this way. All scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. It's reliable because it's God's inspired word breathed out, breathed out through himself, through his Holy Spirit, and this is how he's revealing himself to us. That's what that word means that is translated either inspired or God-breathed. It's a Greek word from two words, and the first one is God, and, and the second one is breathed or breathed out, so spirit, God breathed out, and so it's inspired by him. It's the idea of God inspiring words for us to hear so that we can have words on paper that are his words, that we have the guarantee these are his words. When we read these, they are inspired, and it's God. Every time you open the pages of this book, folks, it's God speaking to you, inspired words to you, coming to life in you by the power of the Spirit. Fundamentally, it's God's disclosure so that we can know him. Now, the Bible was inspired. It was written by people. God inspired people to write it. And this is what it says in Second in First Peter, or Second Peter chapter two, verse chapter one. It says this: Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came down from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were underlined this, highlighted, moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. Spoke from God. So when you, when you read the Bible, when you pick up a Bible and you hold it in your hands, and I, I love you know devices and pads and apps and all that stuff, but to me, there's just nothing like holding a book in my hand. Maybe it's because I am over 50, and so I can relate better to paper than I can from a device. But for me, when I hold it, it's God, I just feel like this was God's word that was written for me. It was given to me that I could know him and experience him. So we would come to the Bible. Folks, it's not a subject to be studied. So many people get caught up in Bible studies. It's a, it's a God revealer. And we come to study, if we study it, so that we can find God. 
Not so that we can get a bigger head about all the information we have and about how knowledgeable we are. It's God's revelation of himself to us. He wants to. He wants to reveal himself to you. He does. He wants to show himself to you. And he chose to do it primarily. Now, there's some other ways, but primarily through the inspiration of his word. We can count on the Bible to be reliable because it shows me who God is. Second thing is this. I can rely on God's word to be authoritative. I can rely on it to be authoritative. Now, another little bit of history here that might help us when we come to the Reformation. So the content of the Reformation was this, the, the context, okay, is a better word. Who has the ultimate authority over our lives? That was the context of the Reformation. There was, and there was still, there was still no debate among churches as to whether the Bible was the Word of God. So there wasn't any... Con, you know, nobody was confused, even at the time of the Reformation, about whether or not the Bible was the Word of God, that the Bible was the authoritative Word of God. That was not the question then. It's not the question now. The question that confronts us is this, that confronted them was this, was this is the Bible alone the highest authority? Or am I going to have other traditions or teachings or inspirations or thoughts that came apart from the Bible that I'm going to hold over what the Bible teaches? That was the question. And that is the issue that we still face today. Is the Bible alone going to be your highest authority? Or is tradition or personal revelation or inspiration the same or even take precedence over the Bible? In their day, and for many places in our day today, same thing. What someone says or tradition takes precedence over what the Bible says. So that's still a question we have to ask today. It was the crux of the Reformation's challenge to the way things were going. Will we rely on the Bible alone to be our authority? Or we will rely on the Bible and, it was the Bible and, traditions, inspirations, and then other revelations that were received by individuals or groups. And there are groups today that uh, are outside of what would be the norm of Christianity, and they exist because they have added to. They have books that have added to in that way. Martin Luther said it can't be both. Because tradition always changes. Inspiration is not reliable. And tradition is based upon the whims and the wishes of the people. In his day, the people wanted to be in power. But the Bible is God's word who never changes. The Bible will be our authority no matter what traditions or religion or the shifting sands of popular opinion might say. This is what it says. All scripture is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Those two sentences right there, they're why we don't want the Bible to be our authority. Because if the Bible is my authority, I'm placing myself underneath this. And I'm saying the Bible has authority to speak into my life about what is right and what is wrong, about what is correct or what is out of line. It teaches us to do what is right. This is why people don't want to be under the umbrella of God's authority. Because they don't want to be told what is right or what is wrong. See, when we, we, we just mom's in the same place here. We want to call our own shots. We want to determine our own way based on our own reasoning about what we think is right or wrong. 
Martin Luther said it this way. He said, the, the authority of Scripture is greater than the comprehension of the whole of man's reason, ability to reason. So, folks, we have to ask this question. Who or what is my final authority? Will it be the words of a wise and persuasive person? Will it be the words of a group or religion? Will it be the words of a scholar or guru that we watched online or we listened to on a podcast or we read about on a blog? So here's why this is so important. Whatever your highest authority is will direct your life, will direct your life in the, in the tiny, small things and in the big things as well. And the reality is this, according to the teachings of the Bible, true freedom and flourishing, the things that we talk about a lot in culture today, they come from being anchored, not from abs into absolute freedom, but to be anchored into the proper authority. Hebrews 4.12 says this. It says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Thoughts and desires. Martin Luther said this about this verse. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And it's alive. Now, see, I hear people talk and use a phrase or a series of phrases. Uh, in almost every case, I hear someone use this, one of these phrases. When asked to defend their stand on Scripture or stand on the Bible or talk about the doctrines that would be in the Bible or the beliefs there, they'll say something like this. They'll start with this, this kind of phrase. Well, I believe, and then they'll talk about what they believe. Or they'll say something like this. Well, my experience tells me, and then they'll elaborate on what their experience is. Or they'll say this last one. I feel, and they'll talk about their feelings and how their feelings, they're interpreting life through their feelings. They're interpreting life through their thoughts, through their experiences, and through their feelings. So I just want to be gentle as I can, but I want to be as clear as I can today, and I want to say this as carefully as I can. God's word is the authority no matter what your experience says, no matter what you think, no matter what you feel, God's word is the authority. God's word overrules or trumps what you think or believe or experience or feel every time. Every time. R.C. Sproul says it this way. One of the most dangerous things you can do as a Christian is to determine your theology by your experience. By your experience. So you have to filter your beliefs or your experience or your feelings. It's great to you know, think about those things and how do they apply to life, but you have to filter them through the words of this book. This is our authority. This is what we look to. Any other approach than filtering it through the pages of this book makes me God of my own life. And if I'm God of my own life, I can't interpret it any way I want to. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. And they were in the Garden of Eden. They interpreted their reality through their feelings, through their beliefs, through their experience. And then in the process, they set themselves up as gods and they rebelled and rejected God. And it's what we do today as well. See, folks, everything that we need, everything that we matters most, that matters most, as far as knowing God and the meaning of life and why we're here is found in his word. Therefore, scripture tells us, if scripture tells us to do something, we ought to do it. If scripture tells us that God is going to do something, it's not a wish, it's a guarantee. 
When scripture tells us that something is forbidden, it's not a prohibition of fun, it's a boundary for freedom. So I can be free. Sola scriptura means that the Bible alone is the standard by which all other forms of revelation are evaluated. It's the measuring stick. It's the plumb line for all other words of wisdom. And folks, you can either conform to the scripture or you can conform your life to your experiences, your thoughts or your feelings or your culture. And when you do the latter, you miss out on God's best for your life. God's word is authoritative. And the last idea is this. It leads us, we can rely on God's word to be sufficient, to be sufficient. So if you ever feel that you're ill-equipped for life, and that's me, for many of us it would be the same way, the Bible is clear, this last part, God uses scripture to prepare and equip his people for every good work, every good work. I love this quote by theologian Wayne Grudem. He says, the sufficiency of scripture means that it contains all the words of God he intended his people to have in each stage of redemptive history. So what that means is, so in each stage of history is that we have all the words we need to be able to know God and know his will. Instead of thinking that history is going to circumvent what God says or trump what God says or culture is going to trump what God says, things have changed and we need to relook at this, that we need to realize that we are tethered and we are anchored to history and history in the Bible and we're going forward and it's sufficient for all we need, all we need. So I want to read from the life of Jesus and that's kind of wrapping up with this. We're going to bring it to a close and we're going to see that Jesus... When he was here, he saw that the word of God was reliable. He saw that the word of God was inspired, because he knew that to be true. He saw the word of God was his authority, and he saw the word of God is sufficient. And here's how that plays out. We're going to read from Luke chapter 4. Jesus has gone to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's been handed a scroll, and it was a scroll of Isaiah. And he rolled it open to the place that he wanted to read. And this is what he read. He said this. The scroll of Isaiah Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And then it goes on in verse 22 to say this, everyone spoke well of him and was amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So Jesus, first time that he actually teaches, the first time that he actually does anything public, he establishes for everyone to see that the Bible was going to be his reliable source. It was going to be his authority And it was going to show with all sufficiency why he was here and why he was called. Because God had spoken it. And he used that for the launch of his ministry. And what I love about that is it ended with, and they said his words were gracious. Now, when it says his words were gracious, that's not talking about the graciousness of an Olympic ice dancer that we saw in the Olympics. What that means is, is the words that came from him were full of grace. We're full of grace. And we just finished a series on grace, talked eight weeks about grace. Our church has been centered on grace. The very first message I did 
on March 1st, 1992, that we would be a place of grace. So when we come to this place of bringing down, how am I going to live? The Bible will be my authority. I'm going to trust it to be inspired. And it's going to be sufficient to teach me all that I need so that I can become a person of grace. Because our world needs grace. Now look at this last, last verse I put on your notes. Because every week I'm going to end with a sola de gloria. So only God gets the glory. And so we're going to talk about that every week. But here's how I'm going to end today. I'm going to read this and I'm going to pray. May he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. All glory to him. Will you bow your heads? Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you for the opportunity we've had to be here today, to hear from you, to celebrate 26 years and to begin 27 years. And Lord, today we just come and you've asked us to, I think you've asked for a declaration today from each one of us. And it's the declaration, the choice that Martin Luther had. Will you build your life on God's word or will you still build your life on tradition, on feelings, experience, or knowledge, your thoughts? Martin Luther said, I must build my life on the word of God, even if it costs me my life. And I, God, when we pray that for us, unfortunately, there may be a day it does cost us our life. But today, in this day, in this moment, I say to you, and I would just invite everyone here to say the same thing, God, I will give my life to you. I will build my life on your word and what it says. No turning back, God. We anchored in the Bible and what you teach there. As we get to know you better and better, we become full of your presence, and then we are truly people of grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.